Welcome to our Human Experience Podcast. I'm Professor Catherine Colborn, the Head of the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Our school is dedicated to assisting our students to become critical thinkers, enabling them to appreciate and understand the world around them. Our researchers examine all facets of what it means to be human. We form partnerships with like-minded groups and researchers. This podcast series features thought-provoking conversations with our humanities and social science academics who are helping to improve the human experience through their research. In 2020, we will be talking with researchers about language and culture, youth identity and the economy, the experiences of older gender minorities, public health policy and the history of domestic service and much more. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm Belinda Galbraith and today we are talking to Professor Victoria Haskins, a Professor of History with the School of Humanities and Social Science. Victoria is the co-director of Purai Global Indigenous History Centre. She's also a historian of Indigenous and women's cross-cultural histories and her key research interests are in gender, domestic labour and colonialism. Thanks for joining us today, Victoria. Thanks for having me, Belinda. To start with, I'd love to hear about how you got into this area of research. What is it about Indigenous cultures and issues that draws you to it? Well, I uh, grew up in the East Kimberleys and as a child I had a lot of Aboriginal friends and I was spent a lot of time around Aboriginal people as a normal sort of course of activity. When I was 12, we moved to Sydney and there were no Aboriginal people that I could see in Sydney uh, and that was kind of a culture shock to me, uh, apart from a whole lot of different things. Sydney's very different from the Kimberleys. I continued on growing up. When I got to university, I started to more seriously start to look for Indigenous people. I had this sort of nagging question always about, um, you know, what what has happened here where, where there were a lot of Aboriginal people, there doesn't seem to be many around me. I did come to recognise Aboriginal people in the city but uh, it was a slow process. So it was really at university that I started to meet Kuris at, at um, Redfern and around that kind of area and then I started to, you know, learn from them a bit more about history. I was only studying Asian history and American history and Russian history and those kind of histories at university. Uh, but th this is a really exciting time period too. This is the late 80s. Uh, the bicentennial was on. There was a lot of land rights talk. There was lots of great Aboriginal music, a, a real celebration of Indigenous culture. Uh, so, you know, I really did start to think that maybe I would like to learn more about this. Um, and then when I got a PhD scholarship, that was my, my entry into, into that subject. So I started to study Indigenous women's history at that time period. I, I got interested to know um, what has been the history of cross-cultural relationships in this country and particularly what has been the history of cross-cultural relationships between white and Indigenous women. Um, so I started to find out everything I could about that and, you know, talk to people I knew uh, and 
increasingly I found uh, it was a very politically sensitive topic. It was it was quite um, hard to deal with uh, to the extent that I wasn't really sure how to approach it at all as a white woman myself. Um, so I took some time off from my studies and went and uh, lived with my grandmother and uh, on the North Coast and ran a travelling bookshop uh, for something to do. And um, while I was doing that, my grandmother asked me if I should, could do some family history for her. And I was uh, not particularly excited by that idea. I, I thought family history was quite a, a boring thing to do, but I felt, also felt guilty. I was living on my grandmother's um, charity, so to speak, and uh, I felt, well, I, I didn't really have anything better to do. So I said yes, and she could tell I wasn't that interested but she brought out some photographs to show me, to get me interested in researching the family history. And one of the photographs was of an Aboriginal woman standing with my grandmother when she was about three years old. And the woman was wearing a sort of nurse's type of uniform. So I was, I was going, Gran, Gran, who, who is this? Why is she, what's, what's she doing here? Um, my Gran said, she basically didn't know. She said she looked after me while I was little. She started to tell me some incredibly touching stories about her memories of Mary. But she said, I don't, I don't really know why she was there. Um, and, and she said, when I was about six, she just disappeared. And I don't know why. I don't know where she went. Oh and I was like, well, that's an interesting and unexpected story. Um, so my gran said to me, she said, yes, well, why don't you go and look through Ming? So my great-grandmother was known as Ming in our family. Uh, that's another story on its own. Um, why don't you go and look through Ming's papers? When she died, she left a whole bunch of papers and they're in my auntie's garage, my gran's daughter. Uh, and no one's, no one's looked at them. There might be some more information in there. So I was like, okay, all right. Curiosity peaked. Uh, I go out to these old dusty boxes that have been sitting untended since my great-grandmother died in the, in the 1980s, uh, mid-1980s she died. No one had touched them, no one could bring themselves to throw them out. Uh, open up the boxes, I open up the box and the first thing at the top of the box is a folder and on it is written Aborigines Citizenship Committee. Oh, wow. And I'm just like, okay, that is also <laughs> highly unexpected. Um, and I opened it up and in it are the records of this organisation that my great-grandmother Ming was the... Um, actually, her real name is Joan Kingsley Strack. She was the secretary for this organisation. It ran in the 30s. Uh, it was an interracial group. It had um, Aboriginal activists Pearl Gibbs and Bill Ferguson in it and my great-grandmother... Michael Sawtell and a few other people and it was advocating for Aboriginal citizenship rights in the 30s and my great-grandmother was really, really involved in agitating for Aboriginal women's rights and against uh, the removal of Aboriginal children to be placed into domestic service. Now, I'm just going through these boxes going, oh, wow, like, 
This is prior to the Bringing Them Home report. This is before the stolen generations are really known about when I found this. It was just starting to um, kind of get out there. I mean, of course, Aboriginal people knew of this history, but it wasn't really widely known. Mm. Um, and so I'm starting to look through her papers and in there there's letters from Aboriginal women to her, there's diaries, there's all this material... And as I'm looking through it, I work out that she actually employed Aboriginal girls as domestic servants and that was why Mary was working for her. Mary had been taken from her own mother and uh, was working for Ming, looking after my gran. And these, this experience that she had as an employer had led her to become an activist and so her papers were all in this kind of incredible mess, but as I started putting to them together, I worked out what, what the story was. Um, and there was a whole sort of transitional period as she worked out what was going on and became more and more of an activist. She, the fourth woman who worked for her, got ended up put into a mental asylum as a, basically what I see as a way of shutting down my great-grandmother's activism. And that was devastating for for my great-grandmother. She blamed herself uh, and she felt her efforts had been futile. So she she boxed up all her papers and put them away. And coincidentally, that was at the same time that my father was born. So she never spoke about it again, except for a... As I later found out that she gave an interview to Jack Horner, who wrote the biography of Bill Ferguson... Uh, in the 70s. But apart from that, she never spoke to anyone about it again. So it was really lost in our family history. So you've made this amazing discovery and that's really piqued your interest and set you on uh, a course of, 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 of further discovery through this whole um, field of research you're in now, I suppose. Yeah, so I ended up writing my thesis about uh, her story and the relationships that she had with the women who worked for her and how they led her into her activism. But then I became much more interested in relationships between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal women and particularly what goes on in the domestic service space. I got very interested in the policies of putting girls into domestic service that was such a big part of Australian government policy uh, throughout the early 20th century. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that's that sort of set me off on, on this particular journey an interest. Mm. And I believe you're going into a, bif- a bit of a different tangent now looking at the Ayers and Armas who are female domestic care workers from India and, and China. You've got quite a big research project kicking off this year mm. in that respect. Can you tell me about the purpose of that project? Well that's that's an interesting project that uh, comes out of this um, trajectory of research because you know it sort of goes back to the family history again. My great-grandmother was inspired by her grandmother who lived at Wallaga Lake and in the family stories that, that Ming recorded had very close relationships with Aboriginal people at Wallaga Lake, the Yuan people. And I've actually corroborated some of those stories um, in the records as well. But uh, this grandmother, Maggie Hobbs, was born in India and there was a whole story around her having an Indian nursemaid that I, I kind of put aside and thought, oh, well, that's, that's interesting. Um, I don't really know what that's about. I, I didn't do anything about that. But then when I was researching 
uh, a book with some colleagues of mine on male domestic work in the Asia-Pacific and colonial history, I found that there's actually a whole history of Indian and Chinese women who were travelling around the empire looking after the children for British and elite Indian families. So that's that's the project um, and I'm looking at at these particular women, Indian ayahs and Chinese amas, particularly interested in looking at the women who came to Australia in the colonial period. So there's a lot of connections between Asia and Australia in the colonial period prior to the White Australia policy. Mm. A lot of people going back and forth. And I'm trying to, uh, in this project, find the Indian and, and Chinese women who are travelling as nursemaids. Um, I should say that I'm, on that I'm not on that project on my own. I'm on that project with my colleagues, Dr Claire Lowry, who's at the University of Wollongong, and Claire and I, with Julia Martinez and Frances Steele, worked on the Asia-Pacific Houseboys book. Uh, and I'm also working with Professor Schwapner Banerjee from Brooklyn College, City University of New York. And Schwapner's, you know, one of the world's leading historians of Indian... In fact, she would be the world's leading historian of colonial domestic service in India. Mm. So... You mentioned the the book Colonialism and Male Domestic Service Across the Asia-Pacific. That was about the houseboys in that region. Um, Can you tell me what you found out about examining the lives of the houseboys and the servants of that time? Well, what we found in that is that... So the the purpose of the book was to look at Asian and and Indigenous male servants uh, who worked in um, coloniser households across the Asia-Pacific from the late 19th century through the 1930s. And we're trying to pull out a hidden history that's uh, usually not remarked upon. It's a, it's a kind of... Um, there's a bit of nostalgia around it, um, but there's very little actual hard historical research. And what we were trying to get at as was the culture of male domestic service that developed across the tropical colonies. So... There was, an, there was a whole sort of cultural practice of employing male workers specifically rather than female workers and, um, you know, colonised people. So we looked at uh, so-called houseboys, or they're usually called houseboys. They might have been cooks and gardeners uh, in homes. We also looked at bellboys and waiters in the hotels and stewards and cabin boys on steamships. And we found a common theme of self-assertion by houseboys towards their masters. So they, they were, of, as you might expect, they were um, trying to maintain their, their sense of dignity. Um, and we looked at how they resist exploitation by their employers and attempts by employers to prevent them from living a, a full human life. Um, so we found a lot of evidence of being active and standing up for themselves uh, we also found that male domestic servants be, were a, a very... Uh, they were a symbol and emblem of colonialist power, luxury and prestige. And some of that um, uh, translates even today in the present sort of cruising culture mm. um, that draws upon some of that kind of, that kind of thing. Was it hard to find... Um 
information or in historical records, uh, given the the men uh, worked in service, uh, kind of servant kind of um, jobs, to find historical records that actually had their voice in it. Yeah, yeah, very difficult. It's always very difficult to find the voices of servants, um, male or female. Um, they tend not to. They're often not literate, so they often don't don't leave written records in their own voice. Um, but there's also the idea that their stories weren't important and weren't valuable, so people didn't take care to record them or save their belongings and that kind of thing. So we really uh, had to rely on sources written about them. So you've got to read against the grain. You've got to read employers' accounts. Um, uh, we also looked at court cases and photographs were an interesting source because sometimes we found, and you find this with female servants as well, that they take photographs of themselves. Mm. And so you can read a bit into those photographs uh, and also government records. Mm-hmm. So. I believe you had a, a chapter in there on Indigenous houseboys and um, that would be in a particular interest of yours, I suppose. Mm, mm. So this chapter, we this is a co-authored book, which is an interesting experience to write a co-authored historical book with, with four writers. And uh, we, we, this, we took carriage of different chapters and this particular chapter I wrote very closely with Frances Steele from Wollongong and she works on Fijian history. So we did this sort of comparative study of Indigenous employment in Darwin and Suva. Uh, what what I find really, it's just really quite remarkable that in the tropical cities across northern Australia, Aboriginal men worked as domestic servants and this history is really unknown, very, very little known. Uh, and it's it's quite intriguing that there is this history. It, it comes straight out of importing that colonial culture of male domestic service into those tropical colonies. It also relates to some of the fears around Aboriginal women in the home that were particularly prevalent in a, in in the demog, demo, demographic situation of northern Australia, where there were few white women and many white men, or you know, in terms of the population balance for the white people. Mm. Um, and there's just these, there's the really interesting stories. One of the ones that um, that I didn't get into the book but has remained with, with me and uh, it's really stuck, comes from Central Australia actually where there's also male domestic workers. And there were, there were Aboriginal male domestic workers across Australia actually, um, it, but it's up in the north that you see it as a big pattern. But this story in Central Australia, the um, this older white man recalled when he was a child being looked after by an Aboriginal man who used to um, spend all day, every day with him, caring for him and keeping him safe, but he wasn't permitted to touch the little boy. So he had a little stick which he used to push him around with like you'd be hurting a, a little animal with or something. Now, I've just found that... You know, that's the kind of stories of domestic service that I find so compelling where, you know, you've got this history of people being so close that they, they're they looking after children and this phobia at the same time about getting too close to the people that you're dispossessing. Mm. So I find that 
interesting contrast. Really, yeah, mm. very powerful stories. It sounds like you unearth a lot of unknown histories in terms of what you do. What it is? What is it about that personally for you that um, fascinates you or keep keeps you going? Yeah, people people tend to ask you when you're a historian why why do history and and they often want to they often want to go down the track of why is history good for you like your vegetables or something like that and I I'm, I just don't subscribe to that kind of view I have always been fascinated when I realise how long time is and how short our own lives are uh, and history gives you this sort of opportunity to kind of go beyond yourself to go back in time and see you know what were things like and what was going on all that time ago and this I I love the idea of time travel I'm really interested to learn about people I'm fascinated by people and how people are shaped by the context they're in and how they get along or don't get along I'm very interested in the way people relate to each other and the factors around them that shape their relationships now, when we look at the present, in a way, for me, it's sometimes there's just too much. We, there's so much noise around us when we look around our society that we can't really see what's going on. And with history, you, you have that, you know, classic benefit of hindsight in that, you know, you, you kind of know where we ended up getting to, um, but I always like the analogy, uh, I think about the past in this way as a sort of an island and and you got you get on a little boat and, and you, you chug off from the island and the further and further away you get from the island, the clearer the contours of the island become. And when you get quite a fair distance away, you can really see the shape of the island and you can really see what's important and what is lasting and what has going to still resonate for, you know, hundreds of years. And just that kind of way of thinking then makes me think about our present and I say this to my students too and I'm teaching, like, how is this going to look in the future when people look back to us now? What what are they going to, to say? Like, what, what was important at this time, things that we might not even consider important right now could actually be extremely important and some of the things that preoccupy us might be totally insignificant, never noticeable again in the future. Mm. And so I find that really interesting way of thinking about the meaning of life, basically. Mm. Mm. It's a deep thing to think about and... Um, you know, I think historical perspective, it does gives us such perspective on life. So um, it's mm. really good that we've got people like you doing these things and, and writing another book, uh, writing books like another book that I wanted to talk about was Living with the Locals. And um, I believe it contains stories of Europeans who lived with Aboriginal people in the colonial period. Um, did you have a favourite story from that book that you could share with us? Yeah, there were wonderful stories in that book, which I actually wrote with my um, my husband and colleague, Professor John Maynard. Um, uh, we did that for the National Library. They wanted us to use their records to, to bring to light um, the good stories about people who... Uh, had got together in the very early colonial period. So it was really looking at Europeans who'd 
either been shipwrecked or had run away uh, and ended up living with Aboriginal people or Torres Strait Islander people. Lots of really wonderful stories that just give you this idea of what alternatives we could have and and that's one of the, another thing for me about history is you go back in time and you're like oh look what could have been mm. um my favorite character in those uh different stories that we researched was Barbara Thompson who uh, was shipwrecked in 1844 uh, when she was up with her husband and I'll say she was only aged 13 and that's a little insight into the that's a little insight into what life was like for women in the colonial period uh, she was up uh, they were trying to salvage a wreck in the Torres Strait Island and they got shipwrecked um, husband was drowned and the other men on the boat she was rescued by some Kaurareg people who were fishing on the reef and they came and rescued her and she ended up living with those people for five years and one of the things I, I found so, you know, captivating about Barbara was that she had this very forthright voice. So after she was um, re-found uh, by a, a ship, a European ship, um, a man called Oscar Brealey wrote down her stories that he, they, on the ship back, she talked and talked to him and he wrote it all down. So we've got this great voice from Barbara Thompson mm. and she's just a really refreshing sort of modern character who's quite humorous and she was very proud of the people that she lived with and she liked them and she told great stories about her life with them and some of them were, were really, you know, quite funny stories. Um, there was a story about her getting into a bit of a punch-up with with one of the older women after um, Barbara threw water at her, um, which is a very well-told well story. She really gave uh, insight into the humanity of the people that she was living with and the and her own humanity in a way that was just, you know, it was just uplifting to read. It was really enjoyable. Um, and, you know, these histories, all of these histories were really positive, really gave you a sense of, um, you know, how good people can be. Mm, it's great to, to hear stories like that kind of come out of history because often it is the more disturbing parts of history that we hear about and focus on. Um, it, so, it sounds like you've got a quite a busy year ahead of you with your research on the Ayers and Amars mm. and um, so we look forward to, to seeing your work on that. Um, plus you're the co-director of Purai Global Indigenous History Centre. Tell me, what does Purai mean? Uh, Purai is an Awabakal word that means the world, the globe, the earth. So it's a it's a global uh, indigenous view of things. Um, and we started off we uh, focusing on we were trying to bring together indigenous studies and diaspora studies, which is the travel and mobility of people. And there's a whole lot of really interesting work on race and mobility overseas and we really want to get a blend. Uh, we want to get researchers who are interested in looking at intersections because often Indigenous history is very localised uh, and histories of race and mobility and immigration are extremely internationalised and the two can actually really learn well from each other and there's a lot of 
um, connections between dispossession and displacement in in all the, all of that history. So we really want to work with researchers who are doing that kind of um, uh, indigenous histories that have a real eye to the global significance and the global meaning of indigenous history. And we really do want to advance indigenous global history at Newcastle University. Um, it's we're really going forward with that now. We we want to encourage a lot of researchers to come to us. I am particularly interested in women, gender, women's relationships, uh, domesticity, and I'd really like to have people come and talk about that. So uh, that's, people can get that's in contact with you and yes, sure, and talk about that and yeah. We have a political edge to the work we do. It's all informed by wanting to make a difference and um, make things better, uh, improve relationships and, you know, deal with the tough issues and rectify injustice and so forth. Well, it's been excellent talking to you today, Victoria. It sounds like it's a quite a vibrant space that you're working in and uh, looks like it's got a good future ahead as well, so we'll be interested to keep watching that space. Thanks for sharing with us today. Thanks a lot, Belinda. <laughs>